November 18, 1942, 47 patients at the Oregon State Hospital for the Insane eat scrambled eggs and die. This, my dear friends, is some kick-ass Oregon history. Welcome to another installment of Kick-Ass Oregon History, a survey created by the geeked out history folks at orhistory.com. I'm your host, Andy Lindbergh, and under the guidance of resident historian Doug Kent Crispin, we profile only the most badass, captivating Oregon stories. It's all Oregon sex, drugs, rock and roll, and earth-shattering, devastating destruction. Basically, the good stuff. Kick-Ass Oregon History is a presentation of ORHistory.com and is supported by listeners like you. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit ORHistory.com and click Donate. There's an interesting timeline of the Oregon State Hospital's history in the Statesman Journal on their website. The first entry of the interactive timeline is July 1st, 1883, and a descriptor notes that a train rolled into Salem from Portland, bringing the first group of patients to the new Oregon State Insane Asylum. Is it disturbing or appropriate that the first batch of loonies came straight out of Portland? Well, I don't know, but then there's the name. The Oregon State Insane Asylum. How quaint. But the mere establishment of this facility says something about the importance that the citizens of our state felt for the care of the mentally ill, even in the 1880s. The Statesman Journal's timeline notes that forms of treatment ranged from submerging patients in warm baths to restraining them in wet sheet packs and subjecting them to insulin comas. So there's that, but an incident occurred that would drastically affect the story of the institution that by 1942 had upgraded its name to the Oregon State Hospital for the Insane. On November 18, 1942, patients sat down to a dinner of scrambled eggs. 47 never got up. A 29-year-old patient, one of the 467 that were served the eggs, whispered to an Oregonian reporter that, As soon as I had swallowed the first spoonful of my eggs, my face became numb. My teeth began to ache. Pretty soon, my legs became paralyzed. The reporter notes that within five minutes of eating the eggs, patients began complaining of feeling ill. Ten minutes later, scores were vomiting blood, crawling about the dining rooms on hands and knees, so paralyzed that they were unable to stand. They began dying within an hour, and at midnight, the death toll already numbered over 30. Inmate R.C. Tillett said, I put a small portion of the scrambled eggs in my mouth. It had a sour taste, so I spit it out immediately. Perhaps inadvertently, Tillett may have saved the life of another inmate. The patient, known to overeat, had scooped a double portion of the scrambled eggs onto his plate. Tillett ordered the man to put half back as he was concerned that there were not enough eggs for everyone. 
The man complained, but after eating his single portion, was ferociously ill. It was thought at the time that a second helping of eggs may have killed him. Nurse Allie Wassell was hailed in the press as the heroine of the hospital. Determining that something was wrong with the eggs, she took a small bite and realized that all was not well. She ordered the patients in her ward to stop eating the eggs. While most had already eaten a little, her patients became quickly ill. But Mrs. Wassell's ward was the only one served eggs not to suffer any deaths. She herself was at death's door just from the small taste of the dinner. Ultimately, over 400 people in five wards were sickened by the poison, with 47 dying. The hospital's small morgue quickly became overwhelmed, so bodies were stacked in the chapel. This space was rapidly filled with the dead as well, and an adjoining hallway was soon littered with bodies. Overwhelmed, area undertakers began the embalming process with the dead still in the hospital. Authorities pretty promptly hypothesized that sodium fluoride was the cause of the poisoning. Governor Charles Sprague, just a few days after the incident, said, I lean heavily toward the theory that a criminally insane patient at the hospital was responsible for the placing of sodium fluoride, more deadly than a poison fang snake, in the dinner dish of working inmates at the hospital. If only it were that simple. Historian Doug King Crispin. I think this incident would have been easier to explain if some homicidal crazy person was behind the accident, but history is rarely as easy as that. The roach poison in the kitchen, unfortunately, was quite similar in appearance to powdered milk. In fact, the Oregonian called the milk, quote, only slightly dissimilar in color and texture to the roach poison, end quote. Additionally, in a cruel turn of events, it was stored in close proximity to the powdered milk in a large, unmarked, galvanized trash can. It is important for the context of our tale to remember that there was a war going on, and it's nearly a year to the day since the, since the bombing of Pearl Harbor. The State Hospital for the Insane, and I'm sorry, that title is so disturbing that I have to use it, but the State Hospital for the Insane was given surplus food by the federal government, which included cans of frozen eggs. Imagine the toll that this all-consuming effort is having on the populace of the United States, and indeed, on Oregon. The war effort also took a toll on the available workforce for the hospital. Under a heading unfortunately called Kitchen Help Demented, the Oregonian reported that most of the kitchen help suffer from dementia, precox and alcoholism, and thus could not always rely on the truth of the answers to questions. With most witnesses to the incident being quite literally insane, placing blame was a challenge. District Attorney Miller Hayden eventually charged hospital employees Mrs. Mary O'Hare and A.B. McKillop with the deaths. Over days of questioning, McKillop, also called Mickey, who worked as an assistant cook at the facility, admitted that the eggs did contain roach poison. 
He said the deadly combination resulted from his sending George Noson, the patient helper and inmate, to the basement storeroom to fetch some powdered milk. In violation of hospital policy, McKillop handed Noson his keys to the storeroom, which also had a key to the closet that the roach poison was stored in. Apparently, an honest mistake, Noson returned with the poison instead of powdered milk, which McKillop unknowingly mixed into the frozen eggs. By some estimates, McKillop mixed five or six pounds of roach poison into the eggs. McKillop told authorities that once the patient started dying, he and Noson, along with Chief Cook Mary O'Hare, went to the basement, and Noson showed them the trash can he had obtained the powder from. Noson, apparently confused, had thought that the roach poison was the powdered milk. McKillop wanted to let the authorities know at that moment what had happened, but Mrs. O'Hare quickly said, No, Mickey, don't do it. We'll get ourselves in a lot of trouble. Depending on how you interpret their behaviors, the kitchen crew withheld, misled, or even fabricated information while being questioned by law enforcement and hospital administration. Ultimately, after the story finally emerged a few days later, McKillop took the blame for the incident and stood up for Mrs. O'Hare, saying, She had nothing to do with getting the powder, getting the key, or anything. I mixed it, I did. Two investigations were conducted into the incident, one by the state police and state hospital officials, and the other by the district attorney and a Marion County grand jury. The superintendent of the hospital, Dr. John Evans, was quoted as saying, I know many people will criticize me for having poison on the hospital premises, but this is a necessity. We have poisons in the greenhouse, commissary, pathology department, drug room and every medicine cabinet in the institution, but these are under lock and key. They have to be available to our employees. Dr. Evans stated that due to the shortage of help entirely due to the war, that all state institutions, including the Oregon State Hospital for the Insane, were handicapped in finding good help. Low wages did not help the matter. The Marion County Grand Jury agreed and declared that labor shortages added to the situation. The report stated that the hospital had been found grossly lacking in employees in view of the enormous amount of work required, together with the fact that all of the employees were greatly underpaid. An Oregon Journal editorial drew attention to the need for modernizing the hospital but that funding and building materials for these projects had been prioritized for the war. The labor scarcity was noted as was the hospital's want for increasing staff levels. But in drawing attention to the labor shortage and the need for paid labor and the desire to be not so reliant on patient help, the author felt that being mentally alert as the average person may have still resulted in this unforgettable mistake. In a sentence that almost relegates the incident to an unfortunate triviality, the author concluded the piece by stating, quote, In the final analysis, then, the cause of the state hospital tragedy traces back to the human equation. 
with its tendency to err, a tendency which cannot be overcome by any amount of modernization and which is ever-present in every organization, no matter how effective or how efficient it might be. The Marion County Grand Jury Report also had a few other recommendations, namely that only paid employees be allowed access keys to the hospital and that all poisons be clearly labeled. Both seem reasonable recommendations to our present sensibilities. But combined with the argument for more funding, the plight of the patients in a strange way helped to draw attention to the sad state of the hospital. In an article mentioning the disaster written in the 1980s, the administrator of the mental health division of the state noted that the poisoning probably contributed to major changes at the time when American mental hospitals were, quote, snake pits, worse than German concentration camps. In the end, Mickey McKillop and Mary O'Hare were never charged for their role in the mass killings. George Noson, the inmate kitchen helper who actually obtained the poison, was also never charged. His fate seems sad, however, for Nosen never left the hospital. In fact, he died there in 1983. Involved in an altercation with another inmate, 68-year-old Nosen was struck in the head and stomach and died. An article from the 1980s illustrates the sad life the man led, originally from Medford, as he was brought to the hospital in 1942 by his parents due to his epilepsy. His psychiatrist, Dr. Peter Batten, labeled Nosen as a paranoid schizophrenic who had a long history of scraps with other patients. While regarded as likable, the doctor noted that Nosen had an inability to control impulsive aggression in response to things that annoyed him. Hearing these words from Nosen's doctor, and taken within the context of an obituary about a patient who poisoned almost 500 fellow inmates, it doesn't seem that far-fetched to imagine that George Noson may have gotten away with mass murder. Was Noson annoyed at other inmates on that afternoon and unable to control his aggressive impulses when he went to get the powdered milk and instead came back with roach poison? Was a quick, murderous decision made when standing over those barrels of powder? We will never know. The Oregon State Hospital for the Insane holds many secrets. Again, Doug Kent Crispin. Most Oregonians have probably seen the Oregon State Hospital in the film One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, based on a Ken Kesey book. It was filmed at the hospital in 1975. At that time, the title of the institution had been upgraded just a little bit to the Oregon State Mental Hospital, perhaps a little less cutting of a name. If you haven't seen the film in a while, I would recommend a fresh viewing with this incident in your mind. Jack Nicholson and the rest of the cast do a fantastic job, and the film will help provide a bit of perspective, or at least a physical setting for the story. You could also see the hospital on YouTube. The first hit is an April 2009 video essay by Tim King of SalemNews.com entitled 
Oregon State Hospital Closure and Tunnel Tour. This video features the hospital just before it was closed. The place is really creepy, and with the aid of this video, one can easily imagine that things may have not looked that different in November of 1942. One other recommendation is to check out the Oregon State Hospital Museum Project at oshmuseum.wordpress.com. That blog is dedicated to inventorying and interpreting artifacts from the hospital that are being collected for a mental health museum on the premises. I would encourage a look at this site, and I'm keeping my eyes out for the opening of this museum. The Oregon State Hospital has been troubled for years with patient deaths, including suicides, negative state and federal reviews, forced lobotomies and sterilizations of hundreds of patients and other care concerns. Governor Kitzhaber has publicly apologized to former inmates for the horrors they faced. The troubles have been well acknowledged, so well that Oregonian reporters Rick Adig and Doug Bates won a 2006 Pulitzer for their documentation of the abuses in the hospital. For 126 years, this ancient and decrepit building served Oregon's mentally ill to varying degrees of success or failure. Recently, Rick Attic of The Oregonian put it this way. Perhaps with the exception of the neighboring Oregon State Penitentiary, no building anywhere in this state has combined more history, more tragedy, more human misery than the J building at the state hospital. It is the place where thousands of mentally ill Oregonians died, unloved, unknown, unwanted, their ashes dumped in copper canisters and stacked like cans of paint. It is the building where their state kept warehousing its most vulnerable mentally ill, even as rain leaked in on the overcrowded wards to rot and burst the pipes. A new $280 million hospital is being constructed in Salem, and it is the hope of Oregon history that a new page, a more positive page, a better page, can be written for the mentally ill residents of our state need a little assistance. Thank you for listening, Ass Kickers, and be on the lookout for future podcasts from ORHistory.com. We hope that you agree that today's episode featured some kick-ass Oregon history. Today's podcast was written, recorded, edited, and produced by Doug Kent Crispin and Andy Lindbergh. Citations are available on request. Kick-Ass Oregon History is on Twitter at Oregon underscore history. Follow us on Instagram at Kick-Ass Oregon History. We're also on the Facebook. The email address is OregonHistorian at gmail.com. Want more Kick-Ass Oregon History in your life? Become a podcast supporter. Learn more at orhistory.com. You stay historic, Oregon, and kick ass. Every rose has its
the DJ said Love's a game of easy coming Easy go But I wonder Does he know Has there ever been like this And I know That you would be here right now If I could have let you know Somehow I guess Every rose Has its thorn Just like every it's dawn Just like every cowboy Sings a sad, sad song Every rose has its thorn Though it's been a while now I can still feel so much pain Like the knife that cuts you the wound heals But the sky my historian voice on you. ORhistory.com